Good evening, everyone. Good evening, everyone. We're about to start the program, so please take a seat if you haven't already. Welcome to FIU and to the Wertheim Performing Arts Center. Uh, my name is Jorge Duani, and I'm the director of the Cuban Research Institute here at Florida International University, which organized tonight's event. I'm happy to acknowledge the co-sponsorship of Books and Books, and especially the collaboration of Mitch Kaplan and Christina Nosti, who should be there somewhere uh, in the first row, if I can see them, because it's so, so dark. Okay, so welcome. I also want to uh, uh, acknowledge the support uh, in the organizing, organizing of this event by President, uh, FIU President Kenneth uh, Gesso, Provost Elizabeth Behar, who I think is here, welcome, as well as Dean Shlomin Dinar, who I know is here, uh, and uh, is the staff of uh, many different uh, offices, which I can't mention because there are just too many to um, identify. As most of you are aware, tonight's event has attracted substantial community and media attention. So before proceeding, I would like to uh, take a few, say a few words about the mission of FIU's Cuban Research Institute and why we do the kinds of events that we do uh, like tonight. Um, the mission itself, uh, which is on our website, uh, is uh, creating and disseminating knowledge about Cuba and its diaspora. To accomplish this goal, we sponsor an extensive program of public events, including a lecture series, panel discussions, conferences, film screenings, scholarships, concerts, and book presentations. For over a decade, uh, the CRI has sponsored a book presentation series of which this is part, which brings to South Florida the authors of new books on Cuban and Cuban-American topics, representing a wide range of disciplines, philosophies, and cultural perspectives. Most of the books are published by established university presses, like Cambridge University Presses, which published tonight's book, which carefully select their titles through a rigorous academic process of anonymous peer review. This year, we organized 12 book presentations in partnership with Books and Books and Coral Gable. We're very grateful for that. Uh, also, I wanted to note that uh, because the books are, are sold out, you, you weren't able to buy them here, but Books and Books has uh, copies of the book uh, that they have on sale on their website. Uh, they, they'll be happy to order them for you, as well as uh, Orlando Gutierrez Boronat's books, uh, which he presented actually the last one at Books and Books recently. In organizing uh, public events, our purpose is to create a space for the open discussion uh, of ideas in a respectful and safe environment. We strive to bring recognized experts on topics of interest to our community, understanding that sometimes their positions may be controversial. Over the past 10 years, we have hosted a wide range of Cuban dissidents and organizations, uh, opposition organizations, uh, from uh, various groups, and we're very happy to provide a forum for discussion of that kind. Now, I wanted to clarify that the opinions of our guest speakers do not necessarily represent the perspective of the institute, the university, or individual employees. Institutionally, FIU does not take a stand uh, with a particular viewpoint. Our mission and responsibility are to facilitate the free flow of ideas and knowledge. We're confident that tonight's book presentation and discussion, as with all our public programs, will be a forum where constructive conversation, differing points of view, and engagement with multiple perspectives can flourish. The hallmark, hallmark of an academic research institution is precisely to cultivate meaningful opportunities for substantive academic debate. FIU and CRI have a long-standing record of acknowledging the rich history and meaningful contributions, as well as the suffering and many sacrifices 
of the Cuban-American community here in Miami and across the United States and even other parts of the world. Documenting and preserving this rich heritage is one of the primary reasons why CRI was founded uh, back in 1991, and it still inspires our work today. I might add that myself, I'm a proud member of the Cuban-American community and have personally experienced many of the trials and tribulations, the sorrows and the joys of Cubans in exile. Before I introduce our speakers, I have to make an announcement about tonight's expected decorum. It is our intention, as I have uh, said already, uh, to have a civil discussion where everyone who wants to speak can uh, do so and uh, wait their turn. Anyone who attempts to disrupt this event will be asked to leave the auditorium. There is an area outside of the building uh, for any individuals who wish to exercise their right to voice their positions. Tonight's program will follow a standard academic uh, format, which is quite simple. Our first speaker, Dr. Susan, Susan Eckstein, will have about 20 minutes to make her presentation. Then our discussant, Orlando Gutierrez Boronat, will have about 15 minutes, and then I will moderate a question and answer period with the audience for about 30 minutes. That means that if everything goes according to plan, we will end uh, the event around 8.15. I'm now pleased to introduce the participants in tonight's program. First, we'll hear from Dr. Susan Eckstein, who is a professor in the Party School of Global and Global Studies and in the Sociology Department at Boston University. She has authored numerous books and articles on the Mexican urban poor, political economic developments in Cuba, Cuban immigration, immigration policy, and Latin American social movements. She has previously taught at Boston College, Columbia University, the University of California, Santa Barbara, and Harvard University. She earned her PhD in sociology from Columbia University and her BA in sociology from Beloit College in Wisconsin. Her published books are too many to mention here, but I would highlight three titles that are relevant to tonight's presentation. How Immigrants Impact Their Homelands, published in 2013. The Immigrant Divide, How Cuban Americans Changed the U.S. and Their Homeland uh, in, in 2009. And Back from the Future, Cuba Under Castro, published originally in 1995 and also republished in 1996. She had received numerous fellowships from prestigious institutions such as the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. Catherine, D. and Catherine MacArthur Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, Tinker Foundation, and the Russell Foundation, Russell Sage Foundation, to name a few. She's also received several awards for her publications from institutions such as the American Sociological Association, the American Political Science Association, and the New England Council on Latin American Studies. Our second speaker will be Dr. Orlando Gutierrez Borona who is an award-winning author and community leader. He's also worked as a reporter, journalist, and professor. He is co-founder and spokesperson for the Cuban Democratic Directorate based in Miami, a non-governmental organization seeking to promote human rights and democratic change in Cuba. He's also a member of the Assembly of the Cuban Resistance, a coalition of Cuban and anti-communist groups inside and outside Cuba. He has previously taught at Georgetown University, Florida International University, for many years, I think it was nine, and also Belen Jesuit Preparatory School here in Miami. Um, he holds a PhD in the Philosophy of International Relations from the University of Miami. His doctoral dissertation, focusing on Cuban exiled nationalism, won him the John Barrett Prize for Best Dissertation of Latin America. He also earned a master's degree in political science and a bachelor's degree in communication from Florida International University. Uh, Dr. Bo uh, Guterres Boronat is the author of several books in English and Spanish on Cuban topics, including 
the latest one, the Cuba, The Doctrine of the Lie, published just recently, 2022. Raíz y Transición en la Construcción y Reconstrucción de Cuba, published also this year. And Cuba, A Nation in Search of a State, published in 2011. These academic essays have appeared in journals such as the Journal of Democracy and the Journal of Interdisciplinary Studies. He's also authored numerous journalistic pieces in local, national, and international venues, including the Miami Herald, the Adidas Americas, the National Post, the National Review, America's Quarterly, and the Toronto Star. Uh, so without further ado, I give you Dr. Susan Exton. Let me just, I'm limited in the time that I can speak, but I want to thank um, Books and Books for very generously offering to sponsor uh, my the book talk, book uh, presentation initially, and my thanks to FIU, and particularly to uh, Professor Whaley and the Cuban Research Institute uh, here at, at uh, FIU. So um, with no further ado, I'm gonna start and maybe, well, let me just say, um, I have studied Cuban immigrants for quite a while now. As, uh, as was mentioned, I've written a book on uh, Cuban immigrant, different ways of Cuban immigration to Miami and to the United States in general. So this book was really inspired to get a sense of US-Cuban immigration policy, seeing it from the point of policy. What were the policies uh, that the US has uh, developed over the years for Cuban immigrants and how it's evolved and why. So my, my, my talk is absolutely focused on US policies, why they emerged, how they evolved, and what consequences did they have. Um, so it's really the story behind lots of waves of immigrants um, here in Miami. So let me begin. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if somebody is doing any slides, so can I just put a hand up? Yeah. Okay. So, I've already said that what, this is what my, my, my presentation is on the book, on, uh, on, on the various the, the policies, what they were, and what effects they have. I don't know. Okay, thank yeah. you. No, 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 back. Great. So what I, I mean, since I'm still limited in time, uh, what I'm going to do is just highlight uh, or summarize, synthesize the kinds of uh, benefits that uh, have been extended by the U.S. Uh, to Cubans over the years. I should say the book is based on about six years of research. Um, I've gone to all the presidential libraries of, you know, the, the uh, the Kennedy administration, Johnson, Nixon, um, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, uh, etc. So I've gone to the various uh, archives and uh, looked at the materials that were there. I've gone to the uh, University of Miami uh, archives as well. I've um, also have consulted uh, Congress, uh, uh, various not only the laws, but the hearings associated with the various um, uh, laws that have been passed and some didn't pass. So this is the kind of work that I, I am building on it. So here I'm just summarizing 
some, some of the benefits that have gone to Cubans. They're more discussed in the book. I mean, I go into rich detail about, about the policies as they evolved under each successive presidential administration. So here I'm, sum I'm, I'm summarizing, as opposed to going over, this is what happened under Kennedy, or under Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson. So one is that uh, about one-third of a million uh, Cubans were airlifted to the United States between 1959 and 1973. Uh, I might say, th thanks to U.S. taxpayers that help, help the Cubans come here. Um, the, the Cubans have also come in as tourists as a way to get around uh, the laws of uh, immigration. Uh, Congress essentially regulates immigration law, and I discuss all this in the book. Uh, presidents have certain discretionary power, so parts of the benefits are, are from Congress, some of them are from the, the at presidential discretion. Um, in the beginning, in particular, uh, tourists, tourist visas were used to get Cubans out of Cuba because that, they are much easier to get than immigration visas. But they were given on the, on the knowledge that the uh, Cubans were not going to be tourists, but uh, coming as immigrants, or at least saying they're not as tourists until they would return home, which of course they didn't. Uh, another benefit has been uh, the extension of guaranteed minimum of 20,000 immigration visas, and that was uh, under the Clinton administration. And there's no other country that has a guaranteed minimum. Other countries, according to immigration law, have a maximum, but Cubans were given the, min uh, the minimum. And uh, then, uh, at presidential discretion, certain categories have been uh, created to bring Cubans in, again, to bypass the congressionally set restrictions of immigration. And so two of those that I've highlighted, um, and the most significant is the Car President Carter's, who created, created the status called entrance status pending as a way uh, to allow uh, the Mariel uh, Cubans uh, to come in and uh, be able to stay here, not, not have to risk deportation, uh, be able to work, etc. And uh, Clinton also, uh, probably building on, on what Carter had done, uh, created this category of Guantanamo entrance when he wanted to, to bring the, the uh, Cubans who were uh, the so-called rafters who he initially sent to Guantanamo to enable them to come into the United States. Again, bypassing other kinds of regulations on immigration. Then, um, the, the, uh, the Cubans have been able to come here as, as refugees when they did not meet the official categories, uh, official definition of refugees. There is a, a internationally more or less agreed upon definition of, of refugees set, set by the United Nations and that was incorporated into uh, the U.S. Refugee Act of 1980, which is the American's law uh, regulating refugee admissions. Okay, so um, partly, uh, I mean, Cubans who came in 1959 were in fact treated as refugees. It, by, the U.S. said if you came in after 1959, you did not have to prove that you were a victim of persecution, which is part of the definition of refugees by the UN definition. 
So, um, and then in 1980, again, um, President Carter said, who had just passed the Immigration, the Refugee Act of 1980, said that Marian Cubans were not refugees. They did not meet the definition that was officially incorporated into the Refugee Act. Um, but here were the refugees, and there was a lot of pre pre uh, pressure from, uh, from the Cuban community here to give them benefits, um, uh, refugee benefits. And so they were, they were literally, it was said that they would be get, given the same equivalent benefits, uh, but not as refugees. Um, and then um, the Cubans have been uh, uh, exempt from uh, laws that have limited rights for uh, limited immigration to this country and that was particularly in the late 1990s uh, when several uh, anti-immigration nativist kinds of laws were passed Cubans were exempt so other uh, immigrants are required to come in through ports of entry but Cubans for example were exempt from that and could enter from anywhere that once they touched US land so um, uh, here are a few other uh, and, uh, rights that the Cubans have had. So one was, these were under George, uh, George W. Bush. He passed, he introduced the Cuban Family Reunification Program, which was to enable Cubans to come here before they came up in the queue, the immigration queue that, that is applied to all immigrants. And, um, and also he introduced the Cuban Medical Professional Parole Program, uh, that allowed uh, Cubans who were serving in over, overseas missions for the Cuban government as doctors or med med in the medical profession that they could come into the United States on parole um, and stay in the country. So those were, those were really uh, rights to get into the United States. So here I'm just summarizing uh, some of the benefits that were extended for Cubans once they were in the United States. The most significant, uh, as many of you probably know, is parole. Uh, this was a category, it had rarely been used before the Cubans come. It, it's uh, technically to give temporary rights uh, to be in the United States until you can return home. Well, um, so that's the, the way that Cubans, any Cuban who touched U.S. land would be able to stay here and not be detained, deported, etc. And then in, uh, in 1966, under President Johnson, the Cuban Adjustment Act was passed. I, I'm sorry, there's a, an error there. It should be the Cuban Adjustment Act and uh, CAA. And uh, that allowed paroled Cubans after a year and a day to apply for a lawful permanent uh, stat residency, and then they're on a path to citizenship. So this was a benefit that Cubans have uh, received that other immigrants who came to this country without immigration visas did not qualify for. So in many respects, you did not have an unauthorized or illegal Cuban in this country, thanks to the, the combination first of the parole status and then of the Cuban Adjustment Act. And, and then Cubans have uh, benefited from the most ge generous refugee program in US history. 
So um, those were better, some of the benefits that they got. And then in 1996, when President Clinton introduced the, or the Clinton administration passed uh, the, the, the welfare reform, Cubans uh, are written into that act that, uh, uh, which did not specifies that authorized immigrants from other countries needed to wait five years before they qualified for uh, welfare, before they could qualify for welfare. If you were an unauthorized immigrant in the US, you'd never qualified for welfare, except if you were Cuban. Cubans are the only nationals written into, into the welfare reform uh, to give them rights upon entry to qualify for welfare. No other immigrants have received these benefits. Okay, so these are really, they're wonderful rights that Cubans have gotten. Um, and, but I, I think it's important to see that this is, these are not benefits that went to other immigrants as well. So, why have Cubans uh, have these special rights? Um, and I, the, the reasons have changed over time. It begins as a Cold War story. Cuban, the Cuban Revolution, Castro's rise to power, comes amidst the Cold War, and it's 90 miles away. So um, Eisenhower, who was president at the time, was really concerned that um, to have, it wasn't even a communist regime anyway, but it was anti-US anti uh, right offshore. So uh, this is really the beginning of the reasons why the Cubans were singled out. They served uh, US foreign policy interests. It was, a, it was really an instrument of US foreign policy. And um, there's lots of documentation about the, in, in bringing them in, um, the government was, Washington was thinking that this would, first of all, uh, deplete the human capital of Cuba, and that that would help undermine the regime. Okay, and um, it also, the whole fact that so many Cubans were coming was also thought to delegitimate the Cuban government. So the idea is that this would, uh, 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 this would be a way to undermine the Cuban government. Well, that didn't quite have that effect. And so then we go to the post-Cold War, and the, and the benefits still continue. So how do you explain it if these entitlements were extended because of Cold War politics? By then, by the time the Cold War ends, the Cuban community has really done a terrific job of establishing itself, themselves, building on the benefits that they had, had the rights of citizenship, for example, to vote, um, and so what you're finding is that the, Cuban, the, the basis for the continuation of benefits uh, is rooted in domestic U.S. politics. So the key ways in which uh, this happens is, first of all, Cubans quite remarkably have, um, Cuban Americans, I should say, have become members of Congress, and they are very influential on Cuban, Cuban policy in general. Uh, not just in terms of immigration. And by now, I think there are uh, 10 Cuban Americans in Congress, the Senate and the House. Yay. 
And this genuinely is really, you know, the Cuban community really should be proud of the fact that uh, you excelled in, um, in the main halls of US, foreign poli US policy in general. Then uh, Cubans have formed a PAC, and this begins under President Reagan, who really helps uh, cultivate and, and train the, the, uh, the Cubans to form a, a PAC, uh, modeled after APAC, I should say, um, to start influencing US policy. They initially got uh, support from, from, the, uh, from the government, from the federal government, but with time they raised their own money and then were able to use their PAC to influence legislators to get policies that um, the Cuban, community, Cuban community wanted. And then ordinary Cubans, their votes have been very influential too because they, particularly in uh, Florida, where most the, the, the center of the Cuban American community here, they had votes because they, they had citizenship rights, and they used that. And the Cubans vote in a very, very high percentage. In other words, <laughs> so so those are ways in which they have been able to continue in the post-Cold War to influence uh, U.S.-Cuban immigration policy. And meanwhile, by uh, locating in Florida, during the period that the Cubans have immigrated here, uh, Florida has, has evolved from having 10 electoral college votes in 1960 to having 29 votes in 2020. So the importance of Florida in US domestic policy, politics has really increased over the years. So these are factors that help explain both the, the continuation of special rights that the Cubans have got and even led to new rights, such, such as ones that I pointed out under Clinton, under uh, President Bush, the Bush, George W. Bush, et cetera. So, so uh, starting, uh, mainly starting with President Obama, uh, um, there starts to be efforts to withdraw the special benefits that Cubans have gotten. And the most significant was in January of 2017, the last full week that President Obama was in office, he um, eliminated the parole rights that Cubans have. It had, it had, had been introduced at presidential discussion, so he could do that. Um, so it appeared that now suddenly Cubans were going to be unauthorized immigrants if they tried to come here, and they didn't get uh, 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 and if they didn't get uh, visas to immigrate lawfully. Um, and and then the other one that he ended was the medical professional parole program that had been quite controversial. So. Uh, I think I need to move on because for reasons of time, I'm not gonna talk, I'm, could you please just move on? I'm just gonna stop on what he ended rather than what he maintained. Um, and then for Trump, President Trump, uh, interestingly, further revokes, uh, withdraws uh, entitlements for Cubans. And he did so in, in this de facto, not de jure, he didn't change any laws. But what he did was to have his administration had far fewer uh, law, uh, immigrants, far from your Cubans, get immigration visas. And so he actually does not comply with the agreement 
uh, a bilateral agreement to admit a minimum of 20,000 Cubans a year. So he, as few as 4,000 uh, Cuban immigrants uh, got visas to come lawfully, which is of course then leads to pressure for Cubans to come without authorization. And um, he also admits very few uh, Cubans, uh, allows very few Cubans to be admitted as refugees. He, he reduces refugee admissions in general, and almost none, zero, one or two Cubans were being admitted officially as refugees in conjunction with the Refugee Act of 1980. So um, he also increases deportations and uh, detentions of Cubans, essentially for the first time. So, uh, President Biden, not too much has happened. Uh, there is some movement now to increase lawful immigration again in conjunction with this agreement to, have, to admit a minimum of 20,000 a year, but they're not up to that at this point. Partly the, the, the uh, embassy in Havana is not even equipped to deal with all of it. And, uh, but what happens that's so interesting is, okay, Cubans could not come and claim, get parole. Um, but they found a new way to, to enter the United States if they couldn't come up with parole, and that was to claim asylum. So now what you're finding is that Cubans are coming in and claiming asylum. So the, as are many, many Central Americans, for example. But now what happens is you, um, it, it, what's different about the Cubans is that if they're here for a year and a day because of the Cuban Adjustment Act, they can appeal under the Cuban Adjustment Act to have their status changed from asylum seekers to become lawful permanent residents. Usually asylum claims take over a year. So the Cubans have, have this special way to very quickly become a lawful permanent resident that other asylum seekers do not have. And, um, there's a surge in um, Cubans claiming for asylum. Uh, this past year, uh, that just the fiscal year that just ended, I'll show you a, a slide in a minute, 220,000 Cubans came in, uh, which is massive. And probably the numbers are gonna be even higher than that this year. So these are asylum seekers, most, many of whom are able to become lawful permanent residents and ultimately citizenship. Um, so I, I'm, I think I'm running out of time. Yeah. Like, this is this yeah. was not my reduced slides okay. that I sent you. So I Maybe. apologize. I was asked to uh, reduce the number of slides I showed, and I sent it, but they seemed to put my initial uh, slide projected together. So. Um, I, I think I just, do I have to stop? Yeah. Okay, so these are, I, I can discuss why, you know, the, the uh, not, I discussed why the entitlements occurred, but then I was gonna go into why they started to be retracted, but um, sorry. Thank you. I'm so sorry. Apparently got the old one. Apparently they missed the old one. I didn't know what to do. I mean, I kept seeing these things. Thank you. Good evening.
First of all, I want to thank Jorge Duani for inviting me to be present here today in this very important discussion. And I also want to thank Commissioner Kevin Cabrera because I think that his insistence that there be an exchange of different points of views tonight has been important in, in achieving this, this moment and this dialogue on the truth about Cuba. I am here fundamentally because the purpose, the goal, the struggle of freedom-loving Cubans has been truth. To live in truth, and the only way to live in truth, as Martí taught us, is to seek truth constantly. Truth requires inquiry, it requires debate, it, it requires honesty, it requires transparency. So I am here to participate in the pursuit of truth in this place designed and built for truthful debate tonight. And I also want to recognize Professor Eckstein. She's been willing to come here, present her work, and listen to criticism of it. I think that's very important. And I will be very critical of her work. Make no mistake, this is ultimately an inquiry into the truth about Cuba and into the nature of the regime that Cuba suffers from. The fundamental premise of Dr. Eckstein's work, and the one I'm familiar with is this book, Human Privilege. I've seen some papers and newspaper articles. I haven't read other books. But the fundamental premise of Dr. Eckstein's work is that Cubans were imagined as refugees even when their lifestyles but not lives were at risk. And today, she's repeated here again that Cubans do not qualify as refugees. I think that this is fine as opinion. But I think that opinion, or doxa, is inferior to science, episteme, knowledge. And although respect for opinion is essential for freedom, methodological and conceptual clarity is indispensable for science. I think that the book Cuban Privilege is deficient as social science. And I think that it's deficient as social science because it has an ideological bias. And this ideological bias leads to not being able to prove in that book convincingly that Cubans did not face persecution or well-grounded fear of persecution. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Dr. Eckstein has been scrupulous in her respect of time. Please let me get through this because I have 15 minutes and I have a lot to say. <laughs> um, and I don't want to speak really fast because then you'll lose me and you won't understand what I'm saying. I believe that Dr. Eckstein's ideological bias is pronounced, is described repeatedly by her in the book. I have many quotations, but I'm going to summarize it as this. It is her belief that the regime in Cuba is an anti-imperialist force which, although somewhat repressive, embodies Cuban national self-determination. She also believes and states that the Castro regime was inspired by high altruistic values. I can do the Q&A, I can read you the quotations from her book. Both of these statements 
to me, are historically and empirically difficult to prove. I think they're wrong. Just now, Dr. Eckstein stated that at the beginning, the Castro regime was not communist. To state that is another axiomatic declaration of a truth which is not grounded in history. For example, to believe that Castro was not a communist from the beginning, you'd have to contradict Castro himself. He repeatedly spent the rest of his life saying that he had been a communist all along, from his university days. Second of all, you'd have to dismiss the, the human structure around him and the forces that brought him to power and created the ruling clique of that new regime. You'd have to ignore the regime practices from day one. You'd have to ignore how he radicalized the agrarian reform to create the first totalitarian institution, the National Institute for Agrarian Reform. I can go on and on. But you can't easily just affirm that the regime wasn't communist from the beginning without taking that into account. And I believe that this mistaken belief in what the regime was and what it's always been is exemplified by the fact that in her book, Dr. Eckstein never refers to the regime as totalitarian, only once. And that's in quoting from a US bill, I believe a US law. The regime being totalitarian is widely recognized in political theory. Juan Linz himself, who's uh, one of the key authorities in describing regimes, concluded Cuba is a totalitarian regime. But for the effects of what we're discussing now, not understanding that we're dealing with a totalitarian regime in Cuba prevents you from correctly assessing whether Cubans, exiled Cubans, faced persecution or had well-grounded fears of persecution. You would have to ignore, and I found very little, if any mention of any of this in Dr. Eckstein's presentation, the massacres carried out by the regime from day one, the extrajudicial killings, the number of mass executions, the number of political prisoners and detainees per capita in Cuba, the number of people interned in concentration camps, no mention of the UMAP, UMAP, in the entire book, the campesino insurgency, the civil war in the countryside, the collapse in food production caused by the madness of the agrarian reform as the regime carried out, and the campesino insurgency, the captive towns, pueblos cautivos, hundreds of families were forcibly relocated in Cuba, relocated in Cuba to different provinces and not allowed to leave those towns for decades. The massive historical scope of acts of repudiation. The acts of repudiation began in 1959. Dr. Eckstein does mention the acts of repudiation, the ones in 1980. She describes a great deal of their horror, but she says it's a low point in the history of the revolution. No, it was there from the beginning. The use of mobs, mass formation, as, as it's called, was an instrument of the regime to consolidate totalitarian power from the get-go. And it's a standard practice of all totalitarian regimes. If you do not take any of this into account, if you do not take into account the reality of per capita repression, if you disregard the abundant literature on the scale of mass repression in Cuba, as Professor Eckstein, in this book at least, has done, only then can you arrive at the conclusion that Cuban exiles, as the US government definition of refugee states, were not either persecuted or had founded fear of persecution. But if I don't look at any of that, if I don't mention that, then I will arrive at a conclusion that is not accurate. 
because these are real factors. They occurred in time. Furthermore, Dr. Eckstein doesn't account for the fact that when you asked to leave Cuba legally, that marked you, and you were punished. Leaving Cuba legally was a difficult process because there was repression once you asked to leave. I know it firsthand, my parents lived it. They spent five years trying to get out of Cuba. And additionally, it doesn't take into account that if you try to leave Cuba illegally, illegally, you could be killed, as many were, or you could be imprisoned for years. What about the lancheros, the boat people? Thousands of young men and women, entire families who spent years in prison because they tried to leave illegally. So just wanting to leave was taken by the regime as opposition to the regime. Not understanding that the regime was totalitarian, dismissing the speeches by Guevara, by Castro, from the very beginning, dismissing the laws, they're not mentioned in the book, the repressive laws on a mass scale, which the regime has been implementing to this very day, is to ignore the fact that the purpose of the regime, with or without US acquiescence, was to create a totalitarian structure, was to transform Cuban society, to destroy a society that had existed and create something new. This regime has not been a defender of national self-determination. What's more, how can you have, how can, how can a people freely self-determine themselves if they have no freedom of speech, if they have no freedom of the press, if there's no freedom of association, if there's no multi-party political elections, if, if social organizations have to accept regime-imposed leadership, and on and on and on. Ignoring all this perhaps leads Dr. Eckstein to state over and over again in her book that the opposition of the Cuban middle and upper classes was due to a loss of lifestyle and not to a fear of persecution. No, that's not true. That's not true because, and there's something else she never mentions in the book, natural rights, natural liberties are a core value of Cuban culture. Cuba experienced bloody wars of independence to achieve not an ethno state, not a, a, a totalitarian state, but to achieve a free republic founded on individual freedoms. That's been a fundamental mainstay of Cuban culture since our ident national identity was born. And, and those freedoms and those liberties, by any measure you can apply, were being violently repressed and eliminated by this regime from the very beginning and continue to do so to this very day. A regime that had promised free elections within 18 months had, by the end of 1960, confiscated all private media. That includes 58 daily newspapers, 160 radio stations, and 23 TV stations. And that leads me to another point. I don't know if it's because of the ideological bias, but Dr. Eckstein ignores the realities of pre-Castro Cuba. And she often falls into these sweeping generalizations that ignore what was happening in Cuba and how advanced Cuba was and what the Cubans had accomplished between 1902 and 1959. I can get into that later because I have, I have more statistics on that. As a result, Professor Eckstein continuously classifies opposition to the regime as founded on petty selfish reasons and not on the desire to recuperate fundamental freedoms and out of love for the ideal of a republic in Cuba. An ideological totalitarian regime had taken power this regime believed in, in national self-determination and national sovereignty only when it was convenient for it. And it trampled and has trampled the principle of self-determination from 1959 to today. A few examples, their support for the Russian aggression against Ukraine, active support. 
for the invasion of a small country by a larger country. The support for the 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which split the international non-aligned movement. The 1968 support for the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. No belief in national self-determination, only belief in what was convenient for the ideological totalitarian state. So if you dismiss these overriding and profound reasons for opposition to the regime, if you dismiss and you don't take into account the organized and planned mass scale of repression in Cuba, then you don't understand what Cubans feared, why Cubans were leaving, and the grounded, the grounded belief that anyone could be the victim of repression, and that's what you felt in Cuba. Uh, what you felt in Cuba throughout all these decades. Anyone can fall, anyone can be arrested. If you're a hippie, if you're a homosexual, if you're a writer, if you're an inconformist, if you want to leave, if you're a Baptist, if you're Catholic, if, wh whatever it is, you can be picked up and disappeared. And that's been the rule of this regime. And that truth cannot be denied. What the United States faced in 1959, due to its own bungling of Cuba policy, was the unimaginable consolidation of a totalitarian state in the heart of the Western Hemisphere. You didn't need Eisenhower and Kennedy to talk Cubans to come. They were fleeing because of the massive repression Cuba was experiencing. And a repression not seen in Cuba since the days of the Wars of Independence in the 19th century. And since the United States, for whatever reasons, took the decision not to support active regime change in Cuba, not to seek the change of the regime through decisive means, since the U.S. agreed with the Soviets in the 1962 Kennedy-Khrushchev agreement not to invade Cuba, the U.S. knew that change was not coming. And they also knew, and under the shadow of the guilt of the Bay of Pigs and the Kennedy-Khrushchev agreement, they also knew that not allowing these Cubans in would be tantamount to a human catastrophe. Thank God the U.S. took us in. Thank God other countries took us in. What would have happened to us? My bias, my, I have a bias too. I, my bias is I lived through a lot of this. When Dr. Eckstein talks about fake tourists jumping from country to country, you find a way in, that was my parents and me. Cuba, Spain, Nicaragua, and then finally the US. We were a stateless people. People were deported from Cuba. The priests deported on the, uh, nuns deported on the Covaconda ship without, without travel documents. They had nowhere to go, they had no passports. Who was going to accept them? And this practice of deporting people without passports was continuous. To this day, there are people barred from returning to Cuba. Thousands of Cubans are not allowed back in by the regime. And that's another very important point. When you left Cuba, the regime, the regime did not allow return. Leaving Cuba meant you, you lost your homeland, you lost your family. The, the telephone calls were Cuba were extremely difficult. And when you finally got a call, you had an operator listening in on what you were talking about with your family. And the operator would interfere if they felt the conversation was counter-revolutionary. How many of us remember that? I remember it very clearly. Not only that, if you received, if you received letters from, from your family abroad or you wrote to your family abroad, you could not progress in the regime. They blocked you in your professional development, in your social development, in your friendships. Everything was blocked by the regime. If you decided to maintain contact with your family outside the country. I have numerous examples of that being applied, of that kind of repression being applied. And repression was not only active, it was passive. Just by sitting in your house, you had a block committee uh, watching over you and supervising what you were doing. Privacy was lost. And that was the purpose of what the regime was doing, transforming, forcing people to accept totalitarianism. 
I think that this bias leads Dr. Eckstein's work um, to make establish double standards that undermine its objectivity. There are many that I can list, but there's one that really bothers me. And I'm going to say what it is. There's two that bother me. I'm going to emphasize one. In Dr. Eckstein's book, she describes Jorge Mascanosa as an influence peddler. Why not a lobbyist? Why not an advocate? Why does he have to be described as an influence peddler? What was Jorge Mascanosa's crime? Fighting for free Cuba? Being a successful businessman? Not forgetting a free Cuba even when he had everything he could dream of here in the US? That love of Cuba has characterized our, our community. We didn't leave because of country clubs. We didn't leave because of losing schools. We, we left because our land was repressed. And once we had all that again here, we kept on thinking about Cuba and loving Cuba and supporting Cubans every way we can. But there's one thing here, there's one thing here which really concerns me, and I hope it's a mistake, I hope it's an error. This is, and once I explain this, I'm going to finish because my, rain, my time's running out. Dr. Eckstein, and to me this is very serious, makes a reference to the Cuban American National Foundation and drug dealing. I'm quoting her. Within a decade, the foundation came to claim 50,000 members with some 170 directors, trustees, and associates who amassed fortunes in the United States, contributing $1,000 to $10,000 to the organization annually. Some of them, I'm quoting, I'm reading this, reputedly acquiring their wealth in drug trafficking, with Miami at the time becoming a hub. Dr. Eckstein's footnote referred me to the Cuban Information Archives. It's a great source of information on Cuba. When I went there to the Cuban Information Archive, I found a list, I think it's over 100 foundation directors, um, trustees, and part of the leadership council. I didn't find any reference to drug trafficking in that website I was directed to by the photo note. Then the photo note also refers to a book titled Cocaine Politics. To pages, a book from 1992, to pages 24 to 35 and pages 117 to 26. Three times I went over the pages in that book. Those pages referred. I didn't find a single name of any foundation director or trustee listed as a drug trafficker in those pages. The author makes a series of allegations against people he describes as Cuban exiles being involved in drug trafficking, linking it up with the contra resistance. It doesn't refer to indictments. It doesn't refer to arrests. I think this is unethical. I think if this is not a mistake, linking prominent people in this community who worked very hard to achieve what they did with allegations of drug, drug trafficking and then not showing us where those names are listed as drug traffickers, indictments, convictions, I don't think it's right. I don't, I don't think that, that agrees with science or with a scholarly work, and it is a major issue for us. Because if certainly we suffered from Cuban drug traffickers, of course we did. The whole world has suffered from drug traffickers. But no one ever mentions that it was Cuban American cops and FBI agents who brought those drug traffickers down. And I'm very proud of them because they're the unsung heroes of our community. So I want to finish by saying that, that this compendium of things prevents Dr. Eckstein from better understanding our community, what we're about, what we stand for, why we function as we function, and why we keep on dreaming of a free Cuba. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Dr. Gutierrez Boronat, and thank you, Dr. Susan Eckstein, for your sharing your viewpoints. We now turn to the final part of our program, which will be a question and answer period with the audience. And we ask you to feel, uh, please feel, follow uh, four basic rules to facilitate the conversation. First, uh, anyone who wants to ask a question should stand up and make your way to one of the two microphones here at the front, uh, located in the aisles. Second, I we would ask you to please identify yourself by stating your name and whether you're a student, faculty, staff, or community member, and if you represent an organization. Third, limit yourself to one short question so that we can maximize the number of people who participate in the conversation. And finally, please return to your seat. And remember, we have about half an hour for this uh, session. So again, keep your questions, please, to one short question. And I see we have several people lined up. Uh, we'll start on this side. Please tell your name and, uh, and your question. Good evening. I'm Juan Carlos Gomez. I am, can you hear me? Can you hear me? I am Juan Carlos Gomez. I'm a professor here at the clinical law professor. And I direct the Carlos A. Costa Immigration and Human Rights Clinic. My concern about your, your, your approach to this is the Cuban Adjustment Act is actually not unique. It's based on the Hungarian Adjustment Act. The Cuban Adjustment Act is a humanitarian act. And for example, the public charge ground in the waves in 67. But this isn't unique. This has been modeled in many other areas of law, of other immigration laws that Cuban Americans sponsored but it helped to Past, whether it was Nicaragua and Central American Relief Act, the Haitian Refugee and Immigration Fairness Act. So the Cuban American community truly has advocated for immigration reform, for inclusion, not for exclusion. As a matter of fact, the, president, the policy change that President Obama made was related to the wet foot, dry foot, not as to parole. And I'm concerned about painting with broad strokes rather than, for example, the legality of a parolee versus a refugee. A refugee is defined under 101A42, and a parolee is a broader humanitarian concept, understanding that the reason why Cubans weren't is that the Cuban government would not accept Cubans back, and so Oddly, one of the great shapes of Gomez, the, what is your question? My so question is, did you consult with an immigration attorney who knows this? Because I'm concerned that I understand your idea of unfairness in immigration law, but do you understand that the Cuban-American community has advocated and has been involved in the reform efforts to include fairness to everyone? And did you consult with the immigration lawyers who do this? Thank you for the question. American lawyers? Thank you. Do you want to respond, Professor Exton? Uh, yes, there have been other uh, adjustment acts for, the, for Central Americans and for Haitians. One, I would say they were inspired by the Cuban Adjustment Act and by advocates from those communities, as opposed to the Cubans going out and advocating for the Adjustment Acts for them. Secondly, thank you. Secondly, the other Adjustment Acts all had expiration dates. What's unique to the Cuban Adjustment Act is it has no expiration okay. date. But isn't it more logical to argue to emulate think, rather than to, to I think we need to allow Yeah, let me take the next one. Okay. Thank you. 
We'll go to that side and uh, please identify yourself. Yes, uh, I'm Rafael Montalvo and I am the president of the Bay of Pigs Veterans. For those of us, and there are many here, that have put our lives on the line to gain the, the freedom of free speech, I really congratulate everybody here for what we're doing here, because this is the way it's done. Even when we're slapped in the face, we, we behave straight. I have a, a question to, to both of you. All of this story is irrelevant and it would have been totally irrelevant if we hadn't been betrayed in 1961. <laughs> betrayed not only, not only the brigade, but all of the resistance forces in Cuba were eliminated by a decision from President Kennedy. And that's what's caused all of this. And what you see here is a question to all of you. In my opinion, it's guilty conscience for what happened then. Let's keep on as we're doing it because we're having an exchanger and Rafael Montalvo has asked us to do that. I think that guilt over the betrayal of the Bay of Pigs, over the insufficient support for the campesino insurgent forces who spent years fighting in Cuba's mountains, but also the knowledge that in the Kennedy Crucial Pact the U.S. had agreed not to overthrow the regime and that the U.S. was not going to carry out the liberation of Cuba and the deep knowledge the U.S. government had of the kind of repression taking place inside Cuba was fundamental in resettling and taking in Cuban refugees. The regime is not ended. Repression continues to this day, so those factors are still there. And I want to quickly take, take this moment to make another point um, with reference to the first question. Another issue I see with Dr. Eckstein's work is her the material she, she refers to in cites are either neutral data or those that agree with her points of views. And she doesn't reveal who she has interviewed. So for example, I think there are many, many examples of pan-ethnic solidarity of our community with other Latin American groups and even those who are not Latin American from different parts of the world. But one of the key things that, that the Cuban congressional leaders Lincoln diaz Blart managed to, to, to pass with Nakara, which has benefited millions of our Central American brothers and sisters. Now, Dr. Eckstein has never interviewed Lincoln diaz Blart, and yet she ascribes Nakara and his leadership in it. She attributes it to, to some kind of personal political gain by Lincoln. How could you know someone's intention well for, without spur, first speaking with them and interviewing them? So again, not going to these sources, not engaging them, not, not listening to those who may have other points of views on Cuba, I think hurts the book. Thank you. We have a lot of people waiting in, in, in line, so let's try to uh, receive as many questions as possible. So next question on this side, please. Yes, my name is Ninoska Perez Castellón. I'm a journalist, but I am also, I was a member of the Cuban American National Foundation. And to me, perhaps, the fact that you come here and say so many things about Cubans, 
I was, one of our proudest moments was at the White House when we sat and signed an agreement that we would pay to bring in refugees and people that were fleeing Cuba. When our parents left in 1959, they didn't leave Havana today and end up in the Riviera Country Club the next day. They had to clean floors, they had to do everything because we did not leave a lifestyle. They were incarcerating people, they were shooting people before the firing squad, and that's what you miss in your book. You know why? Because scholars like you are too entertained defending the, the, the communist regime in Cuba. To you, Raul Castro is still a hero, Che Guevara is still a hero, and Fidel Castro is still a hero. And it is insulting that it's open season for Cubans when scholars like you come to this community and say the things you say about our, our community. We are, we are refugees. We escaped political persecution. I don't have a question. I just feel that I have to tell you this. We have our next. Please uh, do ask a question, and then so that we can continue the conversation. Abso absolutely. Um, can you hear me well? We can't hear you. Hello. Yes. Um, I definitely have a question, but my question isn't for any of the authors. It's actually for you. Um, Dr. Dwani. So my name is Delano Sacconi. I'm an FIU student, but most importantly, my grandfather was a Cuban refugee. So my question to you, Dr. Dwani, is over the last two weeks you've been promoting this event, which has been very controversial, over Instagram. I myself have made comments which have been deleted. After my comments were deleted, you blocked all the comments off the Instagram. After you turned off the comments off the Instagram, you blocked my account completely. So how on earth can you claim that this event is a discussion, an open mic discussion for truth when you block the comments and use the same tactics as the Castro regime themselves by censoring us, censoring students. So what do you have to say about this? Because if that is your mission to censor us, then maybe you should change the name from Cuban Research Institute to Communist Regime Indoctrination, because that's what you're doing. I'm happy to respond. I'm happy to respond to the question, if, 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 if people will allow me. FIU's policy is to have an open discussion, as you had just said, uh, and I did at some point uh, mute some conversations that I thought were using foul language and making personal insults, and in fact, uh, the level of uh, the wording of those uh, comments were, uh, I thought, not appropriate. But then I learned uh, from uh, the FIU administration that we had to leave them open and so now everyone can speak of their minds. However, I still believe that it's improper to uh, make personal attacks on individuals like myself or other people uh, on, on this, uh, on this uh, matter. That's all I have to say. So we'll turn to another question on this side, please. Hello. Um, quick question. Um, are you going to be doing a book signing afterwards? Because I bought your book, so I would love to book. Signing, we don't have a, a signing moment, but uh, I think, uh, well, Would we can mind? talk about how to do it later. Yeah. Okay, books and books, later. Books and books, uh, uh, proposed to do, uh, um, I think, what, is it a template that they use? I forget exactly what the word of that. Because I thought the purpose of this was a book signing, too. Yeah. But anyway, so I brought the book. Uh, so yeah, so I, guess I, I, do, I do have um, a, a brief question. I did read your book, a good amount of it, and I really appreciate how 
uh, factual it is. It's pretty much, if you haven't read the book, it's pretty much, a, it's a historical account of like everything that went down. And, huh? Oh, sorry, yeah. So, um, so just, just briefly, um, my question is, did you intend this to be political? And the reason why I asked that question is when I was reading your book, you know, there were certain portions um, that talked about certain things like um, the Peter Pan, the Operation Peter Pan, where the United States, through Kennedy, right, brought unaccompanied minors, about 14,000 of them, to the United States, and then later, the president then put, put in more money to reunite uh, Cuban families with unaccompanied minors. So, you know, for me, I find it to be really an interesting parallel that, you know, right now we're talking about unaccompanied minors that are coming from, you know, Mexico and everything like that. Yet, you know, historically speaking, we spent over $28 million, right, to bring in these people. So I see a lot of parallels. Um, Cubans, I apologize, Cuban Americans. So, so my question, so like, do you see, did you intend this to be political? Because whenever I read your stuff, it's very much like, hmm, there is immigration inequality. Why can't we just provide this to other immigrants as well? Why is it that only one group of individuals get it when the immigrants that I've worked with face persecution, they went through a lot of things, but they didn't get those, okay. you know, privileges and entitlements. Thank you, Thank you for the so question. So did you so mean it to be political? That's my question. Thank you. Do you want to respond? I, wait a second. I, I couldn't quite understand the question. Was, uh, is, is your book political and do you want Did to you mean this book to be political yeah. and cause this because of, a tar because of Cuban privilege? Like, did uh, you mean it to be no, this I, political? Honestly, I, I did not mean it to be political. I, I thought it was an interesting question to, to I was asked a question about whether I expected or wrote this book to be political. No. I thought I was doing a book to try to understand the evolution of uh, Cuban immigration policy. And I have to say, I find some, some of the comments that have been made offensive and not related to this. This is supposed to be a book talk. Okay, we'll go to that side now. Your question and your name, please. Hi, my name is Max. I am a student, and I'm, I promise I'm not going to give a whole spiel. I just wanted to start by, you know, noticing something that's been underappreciated here. I want to first commend Dr. Eckstein and commend FIU because, as a lot of people know, a county commissioner-elect tried to get this event to be canceled, and I just want to commend all of you for hold, for standing your ground, standing your ground, and defending your First Amendment rights. Just because you disagree with something doesn't mean that it should be canceled. And I just want to also say that a part of your book, I'm still getting through your book. You know, I just got it recently. It's been finals week and everything. But a part of your book that really, you know, touched me, that really affected me, was in the first chapter when you discussed unfavorable immigration laws and how those laws unfavorably affected Eastern Europeans and Jews in particular. My great-grandfather was born in Ivankiv, Ukraine and he had to go through the ordeal of escaping Stalinism. So I know firsthand from my family that it's not an easy thing to go through and that 
you know, it looks like Cubans got a good deal that a lot of us didn't really benefit from. And I also wanted to say, it's the truth, and I also wanted to say that my question isn't about political ideas and political positions, my question is about political rhetoric. Because I moved here from the Northeast when I was a kid, and I'm still shocked by some of the things that people say openly, that by some of the things that people try to do openly. Just last year, I was told that what's going on in Cuba right now is worse than the Holocaust, which is an outrageous thing to say because what I don't see... What is your question, please, a question? So yeah, my question is, what do you think accounts, not for political ideas, but some of the extreme political rhetoric that we hear people coming out with? Thank you. Dr. Eckstein and then Dr. Guterres-Borna. Dr. Eckstein, do you want to comment? Uh, maybe I'll pass on this, but I should say, uh, since this issue of refugees has come out, one, I'm not giving my own de definition of refugees. I am going by what, what U.S. law is, what U.S. presidents, the policies have been, and it's not my own opinion, okay? I, you must realize it. I am describing what has, what's in the, in the, in the literature, in the, in the statements that the presidents have made and Congress has made or whatever. And I sh you should know I am a daughter of refugees. My parents were persecuted. They were stateless for a while, so I understand the pain that many of you have suffered, okay? I think you have to understand that uh, this community has gone through a very traumatic process of loss, of suffering, of persecution. And it's difficult for people to deal with that on a purely rational level, and often you get a lot of emotional speak because there's a lot of pain. The pain continues until today. An example that a young man asked about the Peter Pan operation. The Peter Pan operation began because parents in Cuba had grounded fears that the regime would take, away, would take away their authority over their children. So they began to send their children with great suffering, great pain, to freedom. And the regime did do it. The regime did establish in Cuba something called Escuela del Campo, schools in the countryside that were work camps where kids spent three, four, five months in order to tear them away from their families. So that kind of decision, that kind of pain is there. It's in the soul of, of this community and of many inside Cuba. And that may, that may lead to hyperbole, but it's important to understand where it comes from. And I think that seeing, knowing the history of Ukraine, knowing what Ukraine is going through now, uh, we understand that pain too. That's why this community has been so active in raising humanitarian supplies for, for Ukraine. Thank you, Dr. Gutierrez. Your turn, your question, please. Hello. Uh, first, uh, I have a question to ask the uh, opposition and uh, just to make sure, you said you have not read the book? Me? Yes. Oh no, I read the book from, from the beginning to the end. Okay, then I misheard I wouldn't you. dare come here and talk about it without having read it. But I am just a little bit confused as to, uh, you know, the majority of the book isn't hinged on whether or not Cubans were worthy of these privileges. It's a historical book that largely discusses the benefits uh, our community, and I'm a Cuban, so, you know, our community got over other uh, immigrants, so do you 
believe that what is happening in other countries like Venezuela right now is less worthy of protection and citizenship? I'm asking, I'm asking you point blank. Do you think Cubans deserve these rights over other immigrants that are fleeing persecution and horrible conditions right now? Okay. Um, I disagree with you. I think that the basic premise of the book is that Cubans exiles were not real refugees because they had only lost lifestyles and not their lives and because they didn't have grounded fears of persecution. I think that understanding the mass terror and the mass repression unleashed by the regime is vital in order to come to that conclusion about if we were or were not legitimate refugees. And I don't, I, I don't think that taking into account the level of repression in Cuba from 1959 until now, you can come to the conclusion that we were not either persecuted or had grounded fears of persecution, just by adding up. But that is not executed. what I am asking. Wait, let me I finish. am asking let if me you finish. think I didn't Cubans you. I didn't deserve you. rights I did that other immigrants you. Okay, don't fine, get. interrupt me. Yes, please let him answer. Go ahead. Okay, if you add up the numbers of executed, imprisoned, concentration camps, etc., etc., and you see the Cuban population at that moment and later, you see that the per capita incidence of repression is very high. Cuba had more per capita political persons than the Soviet Union in the 1970s. Now, yeah. does However, that apply? Do I, think that? do I think Venezuelans were refugees? I do. I think the regime in Venezuela. Then why is one didn't the, you bring the numbers with I think she the brought her numbers? What? Okay. Sorry? Let, let him end and then we can. What did you continue? ask? I'm asking you why you didn't bring figures oh, if do, you were going to debate her on that point. Do I, do I have time to read the figures? No. Okay. I did bring the Sorry. numbers to here. I can, I can easily I think you've you. answered the question, so thank you for the I question. I think Venezuelans are refugees. I think that, that the dictatorship in Venezuela is a result of the regime in Cuba. It's run by the regime in Cuba, and it's one of the consequences of having tolerated a totalitarian regime in the heart of Latin America for so many years. So we'll continue. Thank you. Okay, we'll continue with the Q&A, and we only have a few minutes to do that, so again, I, I would ask you to please be uh, brief and also refrain from, from the, the, the comments in the back. Please, over here. Hi, um, so I'm a PhD student in the Department of History. I'm a fifth year now. Uh, my question, and you know, Dr. Axine, I have a lot of respect for you because we're not necessarily trained to do these types of discussions. This is not a traditional book presentation, so I do have a lot of respect for what you're doing. My question is going to be twofold because, of course, I'm a historian and that's what I do. Um, so one of the questions is to kind of get a sense of what point you're making. So what do we gain from your argument? What can like scholars, students, the community gain from understanding your perspective? And then I, I didn't get a chance to read the book, unfortunately. I thought we were going to purchase it here. But I wonder if you have um, any chapters or any sections that discuss specifically how race influenced U.S.-Cuban uh, immigration policy through the 20th century, because I know that's a big point. So, it's about race. 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 Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I can answer the, the issue of race. I do discuss it a, a bit in the book. First of all, I, just, I, I discuss the demographics of the Cuban diaspora to the United States. Um, 
you know, I, I, I have to say that it's not an explicitly racial, racial pro-white racial policy on the part of the U.S. government, but certainly the, the who, you know, the policies had uh, allowed a lot more uh, of the lighter-skinned Cubans to come into this country than, but uh, I cannot say there's specific discri discrimination against Afro-Cubans. It might be there. Uh, I just don't know them being rejected for getting into this country. But there's no question that the uh, Cuban uh, uh, diaspora in, in, uh, in the, U the U.S. is disproportionately white relative to the population back home. I'm, I'm going largely by the U.S. census on how Cuban Americans self-identify. And the first way was identify themselves 97% as white. It, that has um, you know, diminished over time, but it's still a disproportionately white uh, immigration. So I, th I think I should leave it at that. And then you were asking me what my... What, what, what we have to gain, no matter what side of the argument you fall on, I think to, to dismiss your work is a fault of ours because it still kind of is negating years and years and years of research and your education, of course. So I think what I'm trying to kind of understand or trying to get everybody here to sort of get at is there's always something to gain even if you disagree. So what is it that we gain from kind of changing our perspective about the way that we view Cuban immigration in the United States? I don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a policy person, okay? I am trying to really understand how the evolution has policy, uh, of human immigration has been. It can be used by, for policy purposes, but I don't see that as my, person, my role as a scholar, okay? I do think it is interesting to see how different immigrant groups have been treated differently in the United States. And I would argue it would be much better for the United States in terms of our commitment to equality, if, 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 all, if, groups would ha if other groups would have similar, the same entitlements as uh, the Cubans have gotten. I'm not saying the Cubans should be denied. So, and, and that's important. I think I'm, I am misinterpreted. I never said that Cubans should not get the rights that they've gotten. But should the Haitians not get the same rights? <laughs> And the Haitians are woven into my book, okay? I, do, I have not studied the Haitian uh, uh, Haiti as, as deeply as I have studied Cuba and Cuban immigrants. But in, in chapter after chapter, where relevant, I compare the experience of, of, of Cubans and those of Haitians. And some of the situations are really quite remarkable when you have a boat coming with a Haitian boat that picks up some Cubans who, whose raft or whatever um, caps, uh, was capsized, capsized, and they come to the to the to the uh, the border here. Or to, they come to the U.S. The Cubans are let in, and the Haitians, who out of generosity picked up the Cubans, were sent back. What? They're saying not true. Pardon? They're saying not true, but let's continue. Not true? Excuse me. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for answering the question.
Okay, we have time for two more questions. We'll take one from this side and then another one from that side. Please. I'm Dr. Josie Valdez Hurtado. I am a doctoral graduate from FIU, a retired university professor, and a Cuban political refugee. Um, I read your book and I have issues with it because it doesn't have any historical context. It doesn't place Cuba as the first communist nation in Latin America that the United States that the United States had to quote unquote deal with. The United States and Cuba had a dynamic con going on while all this is happening, all these 64 years or so. We have the betrayal of Bay of Pigs, we have the Kennedy Khrushchev Pact that Orlando mentioned. Then we have the CIA using Cuban American pilots to fight foreign domestic wars. And that you should have gone and that for that you should have gone to the CIA, classify declassify documents and find out what I'm really sorry, went out well, can there. you um, formulate a question so that she can answer? Yeah, no, I, I'm dealing, I'm, I'm going there. But I have to put, I have to introduce the why of my question. So my question is, how do you see the interaction that throughout all these decades, Cuba and the United States have had based on US decisions, based on interactions with the refugees and the ones in Cuba, and the outcome of what you mentioned as an inequality of us and populations that are not uh, under the same circumstances that we are. Because Haitians and the rest of Latin America, except for the communist countries, do not have the same circumstances that Cuba has. So comparing different, popu comparing different populations is not academic. That is not academic research. My question to you is, why didn't you bring in some historical context into the book? Thank you, thank you for the question. Dr. Axie? My, my book is a historical analysis. Maybe I'm not taking it back. I went to many archives. Of, of different administrations. That's history. It may not be the history you want in there, but, but it is history. Okay? And, you know, every book has to have its limits. You know, no publisher wants to publish, you know, big things. And my book is, what, it's about 350 pages. I have a very defined class, uh, task in the book, and that is to trace the evolution of U.S.-Cuban immigration policy. I stay on target with what the purpose of the book is about. And a lot of the commentary had nothing to do with the book. No. No. Thank you. So it's now 8.30, and uh, this will be our last question. Go ahead. I'm so sorry that my question is just about your research and isn't going to get any applause. <laughs> my name is Kathy, and I'm an FIU alumni. And I did have a question about, because you have so much 
done so much research on this topic. My question was, it feels to me that there seems to be a little bit more to the reason why this comes. And, and when the previous person who stood here and asked the question was like, do you think race played a, any kind of role? My question to you is, do you in your research find that maybe some of the reasons why the Cubans were given these uh, certain kinds of what we call privilege would be because of the socioeconomic status of the island at the time of the Cuban Revolution? The fact that, that the island had more wealth than its neighbors. I, I, I have trouble with the hearing. Is it oh. is she asking is it because of the class background of yes. the Cuban? Okay. Uh, I, I mean, I've come across some evidence of, to, that speaks to the point that you're raising that one of the reasons that the U.S. was so welcoming of Cubans was who are the Cubans who are coming. But um, I think the, the, the reasons why um, the U.S. welcomed Cubans, first of all, it changed over time, okay? Uh, and that's an important thing to keep in mind. But I think in the beginning it was a, a Cold War situation and the, and the U.S. did not want um, an unfriendly regime 90 miles offshore. The reasons start changing over time. But that, I would say, was the original thing, and it, 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 the U.S. was trying to, you know, to have Castro overthrow, one way or another, right? And, uh, and that, that became problematic then with, you know, but, it, but not, I'm focusing on the immigration. I understand the issue about the, um, of the Bay of Pigs invasion. I've come across some documents about it, but the, my book is not focused on that, but rather on, on the immigration policy. But I think, yes, uh, that, that uh, people in Washington felt more comfortable with the Cubans coming in than they would with the Haitians coming in, for example, which I guess is partly behind the comment. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. Uh, thank you, Dr. Eckstein and Dr. Gutierrez. I'm sorry, we really have to stop now. Thank you all for coming here and good evening. <laughs>